Good evening, my name is Doug Taylor and welcome to uh, the Proverbs class uh, on the Noahide Nations Learning Center. Very glad to have all of you with us. And I just pressed the wrong button and lost the screen that had all of you on it. But there you are all back again. Um, so a couple of things just to go over logistics. Again, uh, if you do have a microphone hooked up to your computer, uh, go ahead and uh, feel free to uh, click the button in the lower left corner of your screen. If you'd like to make a comment, I'll get a little thought bubble, uh, or actually a thought bubble will appear next to your name with a number in it, so I'll know that you want the microphone. I'll then uh, unclick the mic, you can speak, and then once you're done, if you click the mic button again, uh, that will allow me to use the microphone. It's, as we've discussed, a, a one-use-only deal. Also, uh, just for logistics, uh, we obviously are having class today. We will not have class next week, so no class on July 12th. We will have class on the 19th, and we likely will not have class on the 26th, uh, and then we should be good for a little while after that. So uh, some summer activities are kind of breaking into our uh, normal weekly routine. Uh, so class today, no class next week, class the week after that, which will be uh, July 19th. Uh, and again, we're using a methodology we talked about where we are trying to ask lots of questions around the Proverbs that we're encountering and try to abstract out the concepts and ideas that King Solomon is trying to uh, get across to us. He's presenting us lots and lots and lots of different cases showing different principles of life uh, based on uh, the Torah ideas. So before we continue on, any questions from previous classes or leftover or that you want to make sure we cover off tonight? Okay, so let's get started. We are at Proverbs chapter 10, verse 5. Again, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 5. And the translation that I'm working from reads, He who gathers in in the summer is the son of an intelligent person. But if he sleeps during harvest, he is the son of an embarrassed person. So let me go over one more time. He who gathers in in the summer is the son of an intelligent person. But if he sleeps during harvest, he is the son of an embarrassed person. So that's what we have to work with. What are the questions? What questions can we ask around that verse? Any ideas? Well, let's start with a couple. There are a couple of ways to interpret one part of this verse. You'll notice that in the first half, it says, he who gathers in in the summer is the son of an intelligent person, but if he sleeps during harvest, he's the son of an embarrassed person. So we could ask, why does one half talk about the summer and one half talks about harvest? 
Now, there are two different interpretations of this. Um, Art Scroll and its commentary, uh, they take the position that uh, harvest is in the late spring, and by summer there's not very much that's still left in the field. And they make the point that a, uh, a, a wise son uh, will continue to glean during the summer, even when there's not a lot left there. Uh, but the person who is uh, in the second half of the verse will end up um, sleeping through uh, the actual harvest when the stuff to harvest is very, very plentiful. Uh, so they're taking the position that those two time periods are different. Um, and so that's one approach. Uh, Rabbi Moskowitz, who I've learned with for many years, uh, holds that summer and harvest are the same time. Uh, and so this is not necessarily talking about two different things uh, with regard to that. Um, and uh, Diane, we're in the book of, uh, in Proverbs. Just want to make sure that, that you're, um, that that's clear. Great. Okay, and it's Proverbs chapter 10, verse 5. Um, and Evelyn, you pointed out, um, do you think he was he was so lazy? Very good point. The, the verse does not specifically talk about laziness but in, in, in naming it, but one of the things we're going to have to ask is, what causes a person to gather in during harvest, and what causes another to sleep during that same time? And Evelyn, I think your, uh, your answer is the correct one. It's, the, it's that whole idea of a person being lazy. We could also ask the question, why does the verse talk about sons rather than just the persons themselves? In other words, why doesn't it just say, he who gathers in in the summer uh, is intelligent, and he who sleeps during harvest is embarrassed? But it talks about sons, which is an interesting idea uh, that we'll want to touch on as we go. Any other questions that might come up? And Diane, you mentioned metaphors for two phases in a person's life. Yes, the um, I want to say the Malbum and the Vilna Gaon take that approach. Uh, they suggest that uh, you've got um, harvest, which is the youth time when a person is able to amass a great amount of Torah learning. And then the summer, which comes later of a person's life, is their old age when they're weak and it becomes more difficult to learn new things. Uh, I have teenage sons and I can tell you, and you've probably experienced it yourself, when you're a teenager it's a whole lot easier to learn stuff than you know 20 or 30 years later for most people. It just, it, for whatever reason, it just becomes harder and harder for us to learn. Uh, so the, uh, in this case they would be I think identifying that the, uh, the wise son would be the one who learns while it's very easy to do that uh, and then the shameful son would uh, be wasting that opportunity uh, and therefore doesn't have that accumulated knowledge and insight uh, by the time he gets to uh, the old age. Uh, so Evelyn you've asked the question isn't this chapter mainly about sons? Um, I don't know as we go through that we'll see that the, the sun part continues. 
the first part of the chapter, uh, we have covered a couple of, uh, of verses. The first one uh, certainly does. Uh, verse 2 really was more talking about charity uh, and then some other things, and then we pick that up again. So it's mentioned throughout, but I don't know that that's a, that's a main subject. Uh, but it certainly does uh, come into play. I think one of the reasons that uh, we see this this reference to sons is that it's getting to a little bit of what the parents end up teaching uh, the children along the way, and that an intelligent person will uh, teach his son to uh, gather in in the summer, uh, but that uh, you know when when there's stuff to gather, but uh, a uh, a person who has a son who sleeps through the harvest is going to end up being embarrassed by them because they did not teach them uh, appropriately what to do. So, um, and and according to the Ibn Ezra, uh, an intelligent father will train his son not to be lazy, and I believe he holds uh, that that is the subject of the verse. Uh, and that is is laziness. So let's talk about that. What, how would you define laziness? I mean, if we, we, we all use that term, well, this person is lazy, that person is lazy, and yet when we really get down to it, what distinguishes a lazy person from a non-lazy person? What's, what's going on there? Can we, can we define that in some way that makes it very, very clear to us? Any thoughts about that? Okay, Evelyn, thank you. They have no vision, perhaps. So maybe they're not seeing out into the future and seeing uh, consequences. Okay. Lazy person relies on deceit, Diane. Okay, so... It could be that there are some deceitful people who rely on deceit, and I would agree with that, and there could be some lazy people who don't have vision, but if we, let me take the vision one first, if we define a lazy person as someone who has no vision, then what would be the difference between that and simply a foolish person, uh, who we've, we've defined before as a person who doesn't see consequences, there's got to be a difference between, say, a foolish person and a lazy person. And if a lazy person relies on deceit, that could be true, but you could also have a lazy person who's very honest, who says, you know, I just like laying around on the couch, you know, got my beer here and my remote, and, you know, <clears throat> life is good, never does anything dishonest, but is very lazy. And Evelyn, you, good, you've said, I think it's one who sees things to do but fails to get up and do them. Agreed. Any thoughts about why a person might do that? Why would a person see things that need to be done but doesn't get up and do them? And it's good because you've, you've taken a, you know, a, a step in that regard. So can we take that a step further? Okay, Diane, good, no ambition, okay. And then let me wait, because I see you're writing something. 
Okay, good. No ambition. Okay, and and that seems to be uh, true when we look at at lazy people is they don't have that sense of you know getting up to get something done. <clears throat> I'd like to suggest a slightly different way to look at that, and that is that a lazy person has a conflict with authority, and that he or it could be she really wants to rebel against authority. And it could be an authority like a teacher or a boss or manager or whatever, or it could be just the circumstances of, you know, my grass is growing up way over my sidewalk, but I just don't want to have to take care of it. And in that sense, reality is the authority. Uh, the lazy person looks at reality as an authority figure. Like, the reality is telling them they have to do something, but they really don't want to do it. And <clears throat> so he relates to authority in the sense that he has, he has to do something because he's afraid of the authority, but he wants to rebel against it, so he fails in the activity that he's undertaking. Maybe he gets up to cut the grass, but oh gee, I can't find the gas for the lawnmower, or I just don't feel like pushing it, or, uh, or whatever it might be. So he, he, he's, he has some fear there because he has to listen to authority, but he wants to rebel, and so he does it in such a way that he, he fails in what he needs to do. Um, and, Evelyn, there's a good point, could be he or she hopes someone else will do that. Uh, you know, I don't want to have to face the fact that my sink is full of dirty dishes. Maybe if I wait long enough, someone will, you know, magically come clean them up. Um, so, that raises an interesting question. Well, if somebody is lazy, what's the antidote for that? How do you actually cure laziness? And I have a have a a thought about that, but you know, before we go on, what what do you think? If you had a lazy person, uh, what what do you think will uh, would be a good cure for that? Any ideas? Okay, Diane, a reward system. Okay, you could use that kind of a thing. It could be positive or negative rewards. If you'll clean up the kitchen, I'll give you $10. Or, if you don't clean up the kitchen, I'll take away TV privileges, if you're, you know, talking to a child. Uh, yeah, you have to inspire them, like the carrot thing, you know, for the donkey. That's very good. And, and that is what we do use... Uh, in the case of, um, you know, children or people that uh, we, we, you know, can't motivate in some other way. A number of compensation systems that, you know, business organizations are, are set up in that regard. Sajigan, interestingly, in his introduction to Proverbs, says that intelligence, or in Hebrew it's called chachma, is the antidote for laziness. And how does that work? The only way out of this authority kind of viewpoint that a lazy person would have is 
to change their value system from an authority value system to a re reality value system, to a fear of consequences. So in other words, instead of seeing um, the situation as, as an authority, like, uh, you know, my, my parents are making me do my homework, uh, what we would want to do is have the, uh, the, the student change their viewpoint from it's my teacher or my parents that are making me do the homework to what is the consequence if I don't do this homework in, the, in real life? Well, I won't learn the material. If I don't learn material, I will not be able to graduate. If I can't graduate, I will not be able to uh, you know, get a job or go to work or whatever it might be. If I don't uh, clean up the dishes in the sink, what is the consequence for me? Well, the consequence is I'm going to probably have creepy crawlies starting to come out of my sink. I'm not going to have any clean dishes to eat with. My house is going to smell and it's going to become very unpleasant. It's not that someone's sitting there making me do that. It's that I'm shifting from an authority telling me I have to do something to a fear, and I use that in, in a healthy sense, a fear of consequences, a recognition of consequences. I would submit that this is a huge change for many of us because we are raised in a society that utilizes an authoritarian value system. Parents are an authority. Teachers are an authority. Whatever field you're in, the so-called expert is an authority. When you go to see your doctor, the doctor is an authority. Leaders of religious groups are so-called authorities. And so we are kind of taught in our society, well, I have to obey the authority. And we carry that, you know, all the way up to uh, and including seeing God as an authority. Now, when it comes to halacha and the actual law, uh, seven Noahide laws for uh, non-Jewish people and the 613 commandments for, for Jews, we have to obey the law because God said it, and that's the law. But when it comes to other kinds of things, uh, we, we can fall into a big trap by simply making God like a big version of a dad, uh, or you know, a big version of the school principal, or, or you know, whoever a person envisions as an authority figure. Um, and because we're raised in this society, and because our society utilizes this, it can be uh, often become our automatic way of operating and yet we won't necessarily really see it. Uh, I recently attended the graduation, uh, high school graduation, of a homeschool based organization that was not Jewish uh, but religious based. And a number of the students in giving their little chat expressed sentiments along the lines of I'm willing to do whatever God wants me to do. And I would suggest to you, and, and I went to uh, you know a Christian college back in my college days, and that was a big thing that students would say. You know, it's whatever God wants me to do, I'll do that. This is an authoritarian type of mentality. It's sort of like, God, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Then I won't have to think about it, I won't have to question it, I'll just accept the authority uh, and, and you just tell me. I would submit to you that the Torah approach to life is very different from this. 
if I'm not sure whether I'm supposed to become a doctor or a lawyer or a plumber or this or that, I am not going to get a FedEx envelope from heaven telling me which one of those I'm supposed to do. I have to look at the pros and the cons uh, and make a decision myself. So when people talk about, say, doing God's will, I would submit to you that engaging in the process of analyzing the pros and cons of this occupation versus that occupation versus what's important versus family versus time for learning and so forth, engaging in that process and making a decision along the lines of, of analyzing all that is God's will. That is what God wants us to be involved in. So that we have to train our minds to see that, that those things are real. And it's not just a case of, well, you know, I prayed and I somehow got some message that I should go to Zanzibar and, you know, help the natives there. It's, I needed to sit down and look at reality and make a judgment about what's going to happen to me if I go do that, what the pros are, what the cons are. Um, as an example, if, if uh, you know, a person um, were living, say, in Seattle, and they're, they've got kids in school, and uh, they're nicely settled in their community, and all of a sudden they get a better job offer in Atlanta. Now, it's not just so simple to say, well, they'll pay me more money, I'll go to Atlanta. It's like, wait a minute, what does that job require? What's the community like in Atlanta? How hard is it going to be to uproot my kids? What kind of learning opportunities are there? Will I have as much opportunity for Torah learning as I do uh, in the Seattle area? And so on and so forth. You have to make an analysis. That is operating on the basis of a, a reality value system. Not just, well, God has something in mind, and if I can just figure it out, then I'll know what I should do. Um, so this is the, the difference between a reality-based system and an authoritarian-based system. And the lazy person, I would submit to you, is caught up in the authoritarian kind of thing, and they're sort of rebelling against it, instead of simply recognize there is a world of consequences out there. We all get them. We all get reality. Uh, we've talked before about, you know, there are only two things you can really know about God. One, what he is not, and two, how he relates to the world. And he relates to the world by having set up systems in place. I mean, everything from atmospheric systems to gravity systems to mathematical systems and so forth. And when we look around the world, we have to analyze those and figure out how to work within those in order to stay alive. And we do that all the time. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we, we don't jump off you know, 75-foot cliffs, generally speaking, uh, onto hard dirt because we know that it's going to hurt at the bottom, if not worse. Uh, so we operate within those systems knowing the consequences of that. It's not that there's an authority telling me, now, don't jump off that 75-foot cliff. It's that that's the system in which we operate. And so I, I learned to operate and to see those things as real. Um, uh, one of my mentors brought up the, the question of smoking. Uh, when people smoke, I would submit to you that the future emphysema and cancer are not real to them. Because if those things were real to them, the person wouldn't be able to do it. And what we have to do is to train our minds to see those consequences as real. Not just know them, 
but see them as real. Lots of people know things, but the ideas are not necessarily real to them. And if the ideas aren't real to us, then they're virtually worthless because they won't bring about any real change in us or in our, in our individual behavior. As we've, I think, discussed before, it's better to have a few ideas that are real to you than many ideas that you know, but they're not really real to you. So uh, that's the idea that I think King Solomon is getting at here around the idea of laziness versus an intelligent person. The intelligent person is seeing the reality system of, hey, here's the harvest. I've got to get that. Uh, I've got to, it's not that anybody's going to beat on me and tell me I have to go uh, glean from the field. It's just that if I don't, there's not going to be food on the table. Whereas the lazy person is, is rebelling against um, that idea. Um, now, I think the verse is sometimes translated uh, <clears throat> as um, a, a diligent person. Uh, and it's an interesting question of whether diligent, uh, whether a diligent person will always become wealthy. Um, by diligence, uh, I think the uh, King Solomon does mean an intelligent person, someone who has a realistic value system. And if a person is operating within a realistic value system, logically he should become successful. Now sometimes there are factors outside of our control that prevent a person from being successful. I mean, you can do all the work to make an invention successful or a sales thing successful, and at the end of the day, there can be factors outside of your control that have absolutely nothing to do with the situation that prevent you from being successful. Um, but generally speaking, if you're operating within a realistic value system, uh, then the success uh, should occur. Uh, diligence without wisdom is not particularly considered a virtue. For example, I mean, Hitler was diligent. Uh, I mean, he, you know, he worked hard at what he was doing, but obviously he was doing things that were horribly evil. Uh, so it has to be diligence combined with wisdom. And by definition, a person who's doing that should be successful um, unless there are factors uh, that are outside his control. Okay, let me pause and see, look up here and uh, check comments. And Sue, you've mentioned the Almighty is the ultimate authority, so laziness is an affront to the Almighty. Well, yes, what it's doing, though, is it's, um, you know, it's a little bit like this, in, in my understanding. If a person is lazy and then ends up with nothing because they're lazy, it's not like God turned around and whacked them because of that. It's, it's about the same thing as, let's say a person starts out when they're 15 years old, um, after having been raised well, and they eat only healthy food. Uh, you know, they're careful, they get fruits and vegetables and whole grains and, you know, good stuff. And they do that until they're 45 or 50. Now, let's take another person alongside them who's 15 years old, who from 15 years old eats nothing but junk. You know, every junk food thing you could think of, and fast food, and heavily fried foods, and all the things that we know are not healthy. By the time both of those people get to be 50, 
one of them is very likely going to be in a lot better health than the other. Now, we wouldn't come along and say, well, God punished the person that ate the junk food. We would say he is simply uh, experiencing the practical consequences of the behaviors that he chose. And likewise, for the one who's been eating healthy food, he's probably going to be healthy. And we'd say, God's not particularly rewarding him. It's he is getting the practical consequences of what he did on an everyday basis. And so the lazy person is doing the same thing. Uh, they, they are getting essentially the practical consequences um, of their behavior. Um, would the different view of reality also affect relationships, Eveline? Um, let's see. I think that the answer would be yes, because if, let's say, let's take a husband and wife relationship. If I view my relationship with my wife realistically, and I have a realistic view of who she is and what she's about, uh, and I do my best to help her be all that she can be, and she recognizes my needs and helps me to, to meet those, and, and we are working with a realistic understanding of each other, then our relationship is probably going to be different than if I view my wife in a very unrealistic way that, gee, she should work 24 hours a day and be my slave so that I can sit on the couch, for example, and, you know, uh, eat cupcakes and, and watch movies all day. Uh, so, yes, I think the fact that if, if I'm seeing reality clearly, that is going to help my relationship, not only with my wife, but everybody else, uh, because I'll recognize that, you know, they too um, run into uh, to difficulties and problems. Uh, sometimes, you know, it's very easy for us to see our own uh, difficulties and challenges, but not recognize that other people have uh, different difficulties and challenges. I may find one thing very, very easy to do and wonder, gee, why didn't everybody else find that easy? But if I realistically recognize, yeah, that may be easy for me, but that may be very difficult um, for another person, then I will be able to be understanding and empathetic and have uh, a more uh, realistic and understanding relationship with that person by recognizing that, you know, they too have needs and things that they're strong at, but that they're uh, going to have areas of challenge may not be the same as mine, but uh, I need to recognize that they have those as well. Uh, and Diane, you said, according to Rashi, uh, wise would be uh, winning in the Torah uh, and uh, lazy would be impoverished in Torah learning. Yeah, I think Rashi, I, I have not looked specifically at Rashi on this verse, uh, but that uh, certainly sounds in keeping probably with the way Rashi might in, interpret this. Some of the commentators um, interpret the verses, uh, particularly with regard to Torah learning, uh, in a lot of areas. I'm taking more of, a, of an approach uh, about uh, practical everyday life Although Torah learning certainly is a part of that, and I think the, the lessons that one can learn in that certainly make sense. I mean, uh, when you have the opportunity in Torah learning to, you know, glean lots, maybe you're at a particular conference or something, and there are great opportunities to be around a scholar uh, and listen to them and sort of sit at their feet, uh, the wise person takes advantage of that. Uh, and a lazy person might say, ah, you know, I think I'll go sit by the pool. Well, you know, you got plenty of time to sit by the pool. 
but now is the opportunity to be in, uh, involved in, uh, you know, in learning. Uh, I had a recent experience with that at the Noahide conference that just occurred in New York um, last weekend. Uh, we were with a number of people, you know, talking about tour ideas and so forth. We ended up staying up until like one in the morning, uh, and even later sometimes, uh, just about every night, talking about ideas. And you know, the uh, the uh, the approach was somewhat along the lines of, you know, what <laughs> I can sleep later. I can sleep on the plane going home. But now I'm with these people. I have the opportunity you know, to be around them and, and to uh, enjoy that time. So uh, I think that's a, that's a very good point. Um, a, a corollary to this is that intelligent parents will raise their children this way, uh, to, to teach them intelligence, to make the ideas real to them, not to raise them on the idea of competition or comparison. Uh, for example, I mean, you wouldn't want to say, you know, why don't you do such and such like Tommy up the street does? Because that immediately puts the child in a comparison thing. You know, why does he want to be like Tommy anyway? Uh, I mean, that what that teaches the child is to measure himself on the basis of others, not on an objective basis of what really uh, is important. This might be a slower process in raising a child, but in the long run, he'll be better off because then he'll understand intelligence and wisdom, uh, and uh, and be able to operate on that uh, on that basis. Uh, an interesting uh, related idea to that that uh, I was taught by one of my rabbinic mentors was um, that you should never, uh, unless it's a safety issue, uh, you should never try to, um, uh, I guess push or, or muscle a child into doing something that he or she cannot understand. So for example, if you have a priceless heirloom vase and you have it sitting on a bookshelf in your living room, when you have little kids, take it and pack it away somewhere uh, until they grow old enough to understand what a priceless heirloom vase is. But don't put it out there and then slap the kids' hands and say, don't touch. Because they can't, at, at, at you know, age three or four, they can't understand that. And it really can mess with their mind. I mean, certainly in a case like don't touch a hot stove, you know, don't run out in the street, those are safety issues and you have to do things like that. But where you have an opportunity to control, uh, you, you want to be able to create situations and operate on the basis of what the child is capable of understanding at the age that they are. Um, and, and they'll, you know, they'll grow over time. Uh, but but helping them to understand to be um, see things as real and make ideas real to them can just go a huge huge long way uh, in helping them to uh, grow up to be intelligent and, and wise. So the verse is teaching us uh, a number of things. It's certainly teaching us the importance of seeing ideas as real. It's teaching us some things about laziness. Uh, it's teaching us some important ideas uh, about parenting. Okay, any questions about this verse? Okay, let's move on to verse 6. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 6. And it reads, A blessing to the head of the righteous, and the mouth of the wicked hides violence. A blessing to the head of the righteous, and the mouth of the wicked 
hides violence. And you all know what I'm going to ask. What are the questions? Blessing to the head of the righteous and the mouth of the wicked hides violence. What are the questions? Any thoughts? Does anybody understand what the verse means? Okay, so if we don't understand what the verse means, then what we do as a first step is to ask questions about things that either we don't understand about the verse or that don't make sense to us or that seem odd or out of place. So, okay, and Evelyn just from the note in Tanakh, okay. And so let me let me start with a question. First of all, the first clause of the verse doesn't say anything in the sense of an action. It just says a blessing to the head of the righteous. So what does that mean? I mean we're going to have to define that somehow. Because it just says a blessing to the head of the righteous. What does that mean? Does it mean you give a blessing to the head of the righteous? Does it mean there is a blessing on the head of the righteous? And what does it mean by the head of the righteous? And why would it say head? Why not just say a blessing to the righteous? Okay. So we've got that whole thing. What, what in the world does that first clause even mean? Okay. And Evelyn, you said the Tanakh says in parenthesis descend so I would assume what you're saying it means it, their interpretation is a blessing descends to the head of the righteous I'll assume that unless you tell me otherwise okay good thank you okay so there's a start Okay, good, Sue. Head is where a person's brain is. All right, good. So there's some questions about the first half. Um, and, Diane, you've added, as soon as the idea of blessing someone enters the head of the righteous person. Okay, that's one possible interpretation. Okay. So let's hold, let's hold those questions, and then let's ask... Let's look at the second half. It says, the mouth of the wicked hides violence. So, how? How does the mouth of the wicked hide violence? There's a question. I mean, when it says it hides violence, I mean, what do you mean? Violence is in the mouth? Does it mean, how does it hide it? What, what is King Solomon trying to, to get at here? And then, I think probably maybe the third big question would be, what's the first half have to do with the second half? There's obviously some quality or something that King Solomon is trying to get at on both sides of this verse. Um, and the question is, what would that be? 
any other questions that you can think of before we see if we can find some answers. Ah, Evelyn, okay. Probably the mouth of the wicked doesn't tell the truth. Okay, so you can't trust him. Okay, all right. So if we went down that road, how then would we, we'd have to connect it back to the first half somehow. So we'd have to figure out what's the, the, the opposite of that. The mouth of the wicked means you can't trust them, so they're hiding violence, something that is going to be detrimental to a person. But now we would have to figure out how do we, um, how do we tie that back to the first half. Because when we have two halves of these verses, there has to be some commonality between them uh, that King Solomon's trying to compare. Indiana, welcome. We are on Proverbs chapter 10, verse 6. So, <clears throat> here's a thought. Uh, Rabbi Moskowitz wanted to say on this verse that the subject of it is secrets. And that in the first half, we're talking about what is in the head of the righteous. Uh, and Sue, we're back to your point, head is where a person's brain is. We're talking about what's in the head of the righteous and what the mouth of the wicked is hiding. Okay, and he wants to suggest that that has to do with the general subject of secrets. So let me ask you this question. If a person has a secret, why would they keep it a secret? Why would someone keep a secret? And there are all kinds of different kinds of secrets, but why? What are some of the reasons why someone would keep a secret? Okay, Diane, they, because they're ashamed. And Evelyn, I see you. The mouth speaks what is in uh, the heart. That that can occur. That's true. Um, okay. And Evelyn, ashamed of the truth, so don't tell it. Okay. So let's say a person has a secret. Uh, they did something terrible. Um, you know, they did something they're ashamed of. Okay, so that would be one reason to keep a secret. Uh, another reason might be, you know, I'm going to have a surprise birthday party for so-and-so and I want him to be surprised. That's a secret uh, that a person uh, might keep. What other reasons might someone keep something a secret? Okay, Evelyn, could keep a secret of something good we've done. Yeah, if you maybe you went out and did a, a very charitable act that was one of those things that nobody else knows about, and you you kept it uh, to yourself. Uh, very good. And Diane, excellent. To prevent embarrassment to someone. Maybe I have information, but if I were to speak it, it would it would uh, you know embarrass another person. So let's contrast the righteous and the wicked here with regard to secrets. 
I'll suggest to you that a righteous person will keep a secret in order to benefit other people. Okay? The righteous see themselves uh, with a, you know, as, as part of uh, a system you know, of mankind. Life isn't just about them. It's about you know, everybody. And so they will, when they have a secret, they're going to have in mind how it benefits someone. So if the righteous person has certain information, or perhaps even an idea, he'll keep it to himself if he thinks it might be harmful. Now, by contrast, the wicked person uses secrets only to hurt and to harm other people. Now we can start to look at maybe some examples of this. For example, if a righteous person uh, had an idea, but recognized that, that the person they were talking to wasn't ready for that idea, that it might be too early to expose that idea to them, then uh, they might hold back uh, from that knowledge. A, a really good teacher has to be very, very careful when to introduce certain ideas and when not to introduce certain ideas uh, because they have to know when the student is ready. Um, if you've raised uh, uh, children, uh, you, you know that you know, there are certain topics that you don't talk to kids about when they're really small because they're not ready for it. They can't take it. They can't understand it. Um, and it would be harmful to introduce it to them. Likewise, the, the righteous person when he has a particular idea may be in Torah learning. If it's an advanced idea, a beginning student may not be ready for that. And the righteous person may recognize, you know, it would really mess up this student if I told them this idea because they're simply not ready for it yet. It would confuse them. It would, it would uh, trouble them because they haven't got the right framework yet uh, to be able to integrate that idea uh, into their, their everyday life. And Evelyn, you've got a great point. You know, you can harm another person. Uh, very, very easily with the wrong kind of idea. Um, there are also certain things that um, for uh, national purposes that are kept secret. A, a king may have to keep secrets from his people for their own protection. Uh, you know, certain things that we sometimes call national security. Uh, we don't go out and tell everybody because, you know, it would be harmful. Uh, it's, uh, it seems like uh, very likely that King David had to face that type of situation where he knew certain things but he couldn't tell the people because it would harm them. So a uh, <clears throat> um, uh, you know a, a righteous person has to know when they can give out information uh, and when they you know cannot give out information uh, and they do that on the basis of uh, the benefit to, uh, to other people. Again, the wicked, they're going to use information because they're operating from their own desires uh, and uh, will use that to you know, throw something out at the right time to hurt somebody or harm somebody or maybe you know, make somebody embarrassed or make a deal go their way or whatever it might be. Uh, whereas the righteous uh, will do that very differently. They're going to be very careful how much knowledge and what knowledge to give over to uh, a student. Um, so, 
And Evelyn, you, you made the point, yeah, there's certain things that you have to do in a very tactful way. Certain things you have to, uh, 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 you know, do in certain circumstances. Uh, I mean, a sort of related example to this, you're all probably familiar with the idea, uh, first of all, that one of the seven Ohio laws is, is a prohibition against murder, but also the Torah idea that embarrassing someone publicly is tantamount to murder. So suppose you're in a business meeting and uh, you're running the meeting and there are seven people sitting around a conference table and you're trying to do something with regard to a project or something and one of the people is just droning on and on and on and on and on. Well, you may feel like, gee, they're wasting everybody's time. i got to just cut this person off and tell them to quit wasting everybody's time. Whoa, wait just a second, though. If I were to do that bluntly, I might embarrass that person in the eyes of their co-workers, which would be a horrible thing to do. So I've got to tactfully, Evelyn, as you point out, figure out a way to, you know, cut off that endless monologue, but in a way that doesn't embarrass the person and gets the project group back on track, uh, and maintains all the relationships. So the righteous person is thinking about that and with regard to secrets they're working it so that uh, they can benefit people. Um, and again, thinking about what the student is ready for, uh, what they're not ready for. It's an interesting uh, corollary that people these days want shortcuts. Uh, there are lots of people out there that want to cut to the chase in terms of, gee, I just want to like be a guru or be a, a great spiritual person or whatever uh, all at once. There's a huge interest in Kabbalah. Uh, lots of books out there now and groups you can join and this and that. You know, like that's the mystical stuff. Like I don't want to do all this basics, you know, like let me go right to the mystical things. And it, it isn't, uh, my understanding from my mentors is it is not mystical. It's just a very high level of learning. But the sages said that a person had to master Torah and Talmud before they were ready for Kabbalah, and then only hints were made of it by uh, a scholar to uh, a prepared student. So there had to be this huge foundation setting. Yet now people want to say, oh, I'll just go out to you know my local bookstore and grab a book on Kabbalah and read that. Uh, and in fact, interestingly, as an aside, uh, Rabbi Chait commented that uh, the sages never wrote that stuff down. And so any of this stuff that's written down now isn't legitimate Kabbalah because a legitimate Kabbalist wouldn't write it down. Uh, but people want that because, you know, in our society we like the shortcut, the quick thing. The student, as I think I may have alluded to in a previous class, who walks into a, a martial arts dojo and, you know, says to the sensei, can you teach me to jump up in the air and kick five opponents all at once like they do in the movies. Yeah, well, fine, if you want to study the basics for about four or five years, maybe we can do that. But people want the quick shortcut. The righteous person is going to be very careful about only giving someone the information uh, that they need uh, at the time that they need it. Uh, and recognizing that if you give people more advanced information uh, before they're ready for it, it can be very harmful to them. Um, and uh, Diane, yes, Lashon Hara is a very good point. I mean, the Tzaddik may know all kinds of information about other people, but he's going to keep it to himself. He is not going to go around and say, hey, let me tell you what I heard about so-and-so, you know, uh, because he knows that will be incredibly harmful, both to him 
and to the people who are listening and to the person that he's talking about. Uh, and so he will, he will generally operate, and this is a very interesting insight given to me by one of my mentors, he will generally operate on a need-to-know basis. In other words, he will only give out information that people actually need to know, and otherwise he keeps his information pretty close to his vest. Uh, he does not go around and talk a lot. Uh, and, uh, of course, that develops trust because people begin to, to realize after a while that you can trust a person who doesn't blab everything that they know. Uh, and, therefore, he's able to, to help the community by keeping information, not spreading it around, and only giving people exactly what they need when they need it. Okay. Any questions on this verse? Okay. Um, I'm just looking ahead as to whether we want to start another verse, and I think I will not, because the next one will uh, might take me longer than the time that we have. So we'll end just a, a few minutes early. Um, does anyone have any questions about what we've done up till this point, or the general ideas and the approach that we're taking in our uh, our study of Mishle? Okay, is this making sense? Are you beginning to get an idea of of King Solomon's approach here? It's very very practical, uh, and our our process is to see if we can ask questions and figure out what. Uh, what he's getting at. So, okay, Diane, good, thank you. Uh, and Evelyn, do you have tapes? Uh, do I have tapes of the lessons up to date since uh, uh, we just started? Yes, if you will email me, and let me put in my email address here. Um, it's Doug at thinkingdynamics.com. Uh, if you'll email me at that address with your email address, I can send you MP3 files of uh, the classes that we've done up to this point. So just email me and let me know which ones you want. Uh, I believe we are up to our fifth class today, uh, and I'd be uh, happy to send those to you. Uh, and let me wrap up the recording at this point, and thank you and hope you'll uh, join with us next time. <laughs>